Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Chris Burke, a physical therapist, and I serve as nominating committee chair of the DDC. I'm so excited to be here tonight for the special podcast where we're showcasing our CSM award recipients. I'm here tonight with Lori Quinn, who along with her team uh, won the best platform presentation at CSM this year. Lori is a return player to our podcast. We're very happy to have you back. So thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much. It's nice to be here. So um, before we get started about your research, why don't you just tell us a little bit about your professional background and, and what it is you do? Sure. So I am obviously a physical therapist. I uh, currently am a professor of movement science and kinesiology at Teachers College, Columbia University. Um, my background has been in neurorehabilitation, really from the earliest days of my work. I went back to get my doctorate after two years of being out in the clinic, just because I felt like I didn't know anything. And I really felt like I needed to get more knowledge. And I started with a master's degree and then continued on. And then I've kind of been in academia and research positions ever since. In 2003, I moved with my family to London. And um, I started working in 2007 at Cardiff University, which is in Wales. And um, that's where I've done a lot of the collaborations in um, Huntington's, including the work that we presented at CSM. Terrific. You sound very busy. <laughs> um, so before we start talking about the research, I wanted to just give you a chance to acknowledge your teammates in this project. So if you wanted to announce who they were. Yeah, thank you for giving me that opportunity. So my co-principal investigator, Monica Bussa, is someone who I've worked with since my time in the UK. And um, she's just an amazing collaborator and a close friend. And I just feel really fortunate to have connected with her to be able to, to do the work that we have done. But this study in particular could not have been accomplished without an incredibly large team. Huntington's disease being a relatively rare disease, it's very difficult to do a study at a single site. So we had six sites um, and there were some incredible um, investigators at all of the sites, as well as our core team at Cardiff University. So I'm going to I'm going to have a few shout outs to some of the physical therapists who've been involved with this. Um, so Lisa Miratori was really essential for this. Julie Hirschberg, who's out in California, she and her team were incredible um, leading one of the uh, one of the sites, as well as, you know, several other sites. We had sites in Germany and in Spain. And so I just want to acknowledge everyone who was involved in it because it really did take a large number of, of individuals to, to get us to this point. Yes, it takes a village or, or several countries, as in yes. your case. <laughs> so, um, so the title of your presentation was Consultative Coaching Model for Long-Term Exercise Engagement in People with Huntington's Disease. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to CSM this year, so I didn't get to personally hear your presentation but several of our uh, DDSIG team members were, um, and they were very, very impressed with the presentation. So I was hoping that you could give us just a very brief overview of the research, and then we'll get into 
more of the details. Sure. So this was a 12 month study and it was the study design was what's called a trial within cohort. Huntington's disease um, has a cohort study called Enroll HD, which enrolls individuals across many different um, countries who come in and get a battery of assessments on an annual basis. So that provided the foundation for us to sort of do a study within that larger study. So it facilitated recruitment but it also enabled us to use that cohort or people within that cohort to be able to say, okay, if you are just being followed regularly on an annual visit, what what does that look like compared to, okay, let's do a randomized controlled trial like we typically would. And so we took within the cohort and we did a randomized controlled trial and we had a regular control group and we had an intervention group. And the intervention group received um, up to 18 sessions of physical therapy over the course of a year. And the main focus was to try to promote kind of real world physical activity engagement and promoting sort of that translation into real life doing, you know, exercise and physical activity with an emphasis on moderate to vigorous um, aerobic exercise. So that was, um, I think, given the research in other diseases, and we have a little bit in Huntington's disease to show this, um, we really wanted to focus on that piece of it. Okay. So I had read in your abstract that um, participants were allowed to choose, like whether they got a gym membership or online resources or purchase their own exercise equipment. So I'm curious on, on, I think you had an N of 53. What was the breakdown what did subjects typically opt for? Yeah, that's a good question. We're going to be reporting out the details of that in a follow-up paper, but it was really, I think, a pretty even split between some people wanting to come into the clinics or the gyms to do their exercises and other people choosing home equipment and doing things within the home. There's a lot of factors that I think um, play into people making that decision. And one of them for some, some people is they, you know, people with Huntington's disease have involuntary movements. Um, I think often they feel like people might be looking at them. They might not feel comfortable in gym environments. Uh, some people do, but, but some people don't. So I think what was really evident to us from some of our previous feasibility studies was giving that autonomy and giving that choice of decision-making and knowing that, exercise and activity could be accomplished in many different ways and allowing people to have that um, decision-making power we thought was really important. So we sort of gave the sites a lump sum of money and said, you know, figure out how to kind of best spend it. And when these PT coaches, right, when they were working with their subjects, did they create the program um, or did, in, did you just let individuals, well, I, I like to walk on the treadmill, so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, it was really more the latter than the former within parameters. So we had kind of the four basic underpinnings of aerobic exercise as the mainstay, right? So the number one goal was really trying to get people to progress towards three to five times a week of moderate to vigorous activity at 30 minutes. Okay, that was, and we had baseline, they came in and we had a predicted VO2 max test. So we did that in order to be able to 
hopefully accurately calculate what that range was. So we kind of knew what their capabilities were. And then obviously, you know, we had strengthening components, balance and flexibility. We had to leave it up to the judgment of the therapist to make decisions about what was most important and meaningful for a given participant. So if balance was a real limiting factor in being able to engage in certain activities, then there was certainly going to be a balance component, but it wasn't a and we've had these before. We, it was not a prescriptive, this is exactly what you're going to do because that works fine. We've done it for eight and 12 weeks. You can definitely get people to engage in an exercise program, but it's really challenging to do. We thought it was going to be challenging to do that for over a year period. So we had parameters that everybody was working towards, but if someone had access to a treadmill, someone had access to a bike, if they needed a bike, if they had a community resource, we tried to work within what was going to really increase adherence. Okay. And so you, you were encouraging some patients to work on balance, which is great. Did you have any concerns about fall risk or safety? Well, fall risk is a huge issue in Huntington's disease. And one of the things in the study was that we didn't measure falls and falls was not different between the two groups, but the number of falls was quite high um, in both groups. I think it was something like 42 or 43 between both of the groups, which is a large number of falls. We were always concerned with falls and we had lots of discussions about how to engage people in safe exercise. But what we also know is that people with Huntington's disease are more middle-aged and the consequences of falls. I know this might potentially freak people out when I say this, but the consequences of falls are not as bad as they are in elderly individuals. So it's not as if we're not We don't care about falls, but people with Huntington's disease fall. Um, We do need, you know, research on balance training and falls reduction in HD for sure. But I've worked with this population for a long time and it's very difficult to have like a zero falls, you know, goal because the chorea movements, their impulsivity, um, there's a lot of factors that contribute to that. So we tried to create safe environments. We tried to talk about, you know, all of that. But I thought the interesting thing was if the intervention group increased their activity level, but didn't have any increase in falls. So some people might say, oh, your intervention wasn't successful because you didn't change falls. We never set out to change falls, but I was honestly just happy that there wasn't, you know, it, it with that increase in activity, it didn't increase falls. Right. So both groups had the same amount. Same amount. So. Yeah. Which was a high number for sure. Anybody looking at it would be, a, I, I, it's a, it's a high number. But that's par for the course with, with hunting. It is. Yeah. So how did you monitor um, the subject's activity to make, ensure that they were doing the aerobic? Was it just what they were telling you or did you have any kind of you know, monitors, physical monitors. Yeah. So we did two things at baseline and at follow-up, we used um, research grade activity monitors. So we use actigraphs. It's limited in that it's only giving you a seven day window and you're just getting that pre and post. And so, you know, there's obvious issues with that, but that we felt was a very objective way to get the pre and post um, data. We also had everyone in the intervention group got a Fitbit. So in the intervention, that was one of the main ways that we were assuring and looking at how much people exercised. 
So part of the physical therapist intervention was when they met with the participant, they would share with them uh, the results from the Fitbit over whatever period of time it was since they had last met. And they talk through whatever the goals were. Um, so it might've been steps, but it might've just been something related to obviously the intensity levels. You know, there's other metrics that you can get from Fitbit, but those are probably the two most relevant ones. And they use that as part of the coaching. So again, part of what we're going to publish in the secondary analysis, we have a little bit about the Fitbits and how much people adhered to them, which was actually really pretty good adherence over a full year. But we um, are going to look a little bit more in depth about what that adherence was and how that changed over the course of time. As you can imagine, we were very excited to have the Fitbits. And then we realized there's 12 months of data on these Fitbits, which is like just an intense amount. So for the paper, we ended up looking, ended up just looking at a few time points, but that was mainly how we, we looked at that. Um, And they also did reporting, you know, some people chose to use um, pen and paper and track their, you know, their activity level that way. And we also did patient reported outcome measures, you know, before and afterwards on how much physical activity they had. Yeah, it's amazing how technology now can, especially with getting that data, improve your exercise adherence. I mean, for myself, just getting the the Apple Watch, you know, and closing your rings. If I don't close my rings by the time I go to bed, I jog around the house just so right. I could do that, you know. So it's very powerful, some of this information. I, I, th- I think it really is. And I think that there's something with people who have, in particular, a degenerative disease. You know, if you're looking, if you're, you know, faced with, you know, you have this, you know, very daunting disease in front of you exercise, you know, by all measures is, is known to be beneficial. Um, If you can use a device that can help you to set goals, to motivate you, um, to keep track of things, you know, ultimately, I think we're going to be using these as therapists to measure various metrics. And I think it's also important, you know, we didn't do this so much in this study, but also going beyond just looking at step counts and activity, right? I think we're going to get to a point with these monitors where we can be looking at more quality levels of of movement and seeing how exercise and activity might affect, you know, skill levels and how people move rather than are they just moving and it doesn't matter how. Um, But I think where we are right now with the technology, it's, I think it's providing us important information that getting people to get up and move more and getting into that high moderate to higher intensity um, exercise is, is very important. Ironically, last night's um, podcast, we talked about wearable sensors and the Parkinson's group and how you can use that for intervention. So um, Mm -hmm. it's great. So you followed um, them for 18 sessions over the year, right? So I'm imagining that you saw them more frequently in the beginning and how did you come up with that number? Why, why 18? Um, I'll be honest, probably that was largely a budgetary constraint. <laughs> Money drives things. <laughs> Money drives a lot of things. Uh, given this, I mean, this is a, this is a very tight budget, even given what we did. We did also have, you know, this study came from, it was sort of a combination of two projects that we had done before. So one was 
a 12 week, three times a week aerobic and strengthening exercise program. And we showed improvements in disease specific um, measures, the UHDRS motor score, a modified version of the motor score. And we also showed improvements in, in VO2 max. And the other study that this was combined with was something called Engage HD, which is more of a physical activity coaching intervention. What we had begun to realize is, look, the reality with these neurological diseases is it's very difficult to get insurance to pay for, you know, three, I mean, two or three times a week, okay, for maybe eight, 12 weeks, but then, you know, it gets, okay, you're cut off and maybe we'll get to see you next year when, you know, the the benefits change or something. And we really felt it was important to try to think about another way of delivering services. And, and I've always felt if we could just have some touch points with people, like they just want to kind of, you know, I'm doing this. I, you know, should I change this? Or if I've, I've got an issue, I, I know that I'm have got a therapist that I can um, talk to about these things. And we would love for patients to be seeing therapists multiple times a week throughout the course of the disease. It's just not feasible. So we need to be rethinking these models of care. You know, we didn't invent this idea. Obviously there's a lot of people who are thinking about this, but we thought um, let's try a different framework and just see how it works. And we knew that we wanted a year because our enroll uh, HD study they get tested every year. So we thought, okay, let's embed with that. They'll come in, they'll get their enroll assessments, and then we can do embed this study within it. And so we've got this natural history study to sort of compare. And that was kind of one of the interesting things about our, our study is we can sort of see what do people, how do they perform if they're just in this enroll cohort versus if they're any part of a, of a research study. Right. Great. So within your sessions, right, I'm imagining you're retesting them, doing outcome measures and adjusting their exercise program. Was there anything else like education on disease management or um, behavioral or cognitive discussions? Each of the therapists got a training booklet and we did a lot of education with the therapists about what Huntington's disease is and all of that. And some people were knowledgeable about it in terms of the therapist, some were knowledgeable and some weren't. So we educated therapists so that they knew about kind of the cognitive and the behavioral components of HD, which could feed into it. But as far as what we gave to the participants, each of the participants had a workbook, which was called an Engage HD workbook. It's actually freely available on the HDSA website and also which is the Huntington's Disease Society of America, and also through the European Huntington's Disease Network. So anyone can download it and use it with patients. It provided a lot of information about some of the background studies, about why exercise is important, goal setting. You know, it was, you know, it was a basically a patient education booklet, but it also was meant to be interactive with the therapist and the participant. So that provided a framework and therapists were meant to cover all the aspects in the workbook and then use the subsequent sessions, as you say, to sort of, how are you doing, revise and progress their exercise programs. So overall, so you mentioned that you were monitoring VO2 max. That was one of your, um, parameters you were looking at. What other outcome measures were you testing? 
Yeah. So we looked at a large battery of outcome measures that were done within Enroll. Um, So those are disease specific measures like, so similar to the UPDRS, we have the UHDRS, which is a disease specific measure. So we did a whole battery related to that. And there were some cognitive measures and behavioral measures that were part of that. Um, Some measures that we did specific for just the study were um, we did a six minute walk. We did timed up and go. um, We did patient reported outcome measures. So there's um, a measure called the HD pro triad, which has clinical symptoms of Huntington's disease. And we also did um, patient reported measures of physical activity. So the IPAC and a lot of you know, some of these we made decisions about because we were in different countries. So like the IPAC is translated in multiple different languages. All of the enroll battery was translated in different languages. So that was really um, an important component as well. So we had a combination of performance-based and patient-reported outcome measures and really running the gamut of HD-specific measures as well. I remember when you were here last time and you were talking about the lack of um, Huntington specific outcome measures specifically for balance. Yeah. And um, that was one of the goals that you were trying to work on. So I was wondering how things are going with that, that daunting endeavor of creating a balance outcome for Huntington. Well, we luckily got a little bit of funding to be able to uh, work on a balance project. So uh, Nora Fritz at Wayne State University and some colleagues at Ohio State. Uh, so um, Deb Kegelmeyer and Ann Kluse, mm-hmm. and also Lisa Miratori and Ash Rao, who's uh, at Columbia. We're going to be working on a multi-site study to try to find a good balance assessment in HD. So we're taking all the assessments that are out there. We're going to be administering them in a hundred individuals, also doing some using inertial measurement units as well. um, And possibly developing a new balance measure. It's possible that some of the balance measures that are out there are going to be good enough, but I think we're probably going to be um, hopefully developing our own. So we're probably a couple years away, but we're starting that study this summer. So that's exciting. Yes. Well, we look forward to that. Um, so share with us finally what some of your, what your overall findings were with your research. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, with a study like this, it's always challenging. You know, you can always say it was a small study, wasn't powered for efficacy, which is, you know, certainly true. It really was truly a feasibility study. We first and foremost set out to determine if an intervention like this could be embedded within a cohort study. There's a tremendous amount of time and resources and money that are um, dedicated when you do a randomized controlled trial. It's very difficult to get funding in a rare disease. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be thinking a little bit outside the box about how we're going to implement this. So, you know, kind of our long-term idea was, okay, wouldn't it be great? We've got this Enroll HD study. If we could use the cohort and we could say, we've just got this cohort and then consent individuals to potentially be randomized to an intervention, to get an intervention, then we could maximize the use of this cohort in HD. And so that's really what we were trying to do. So we did show that that was feasible. We had, even though we hit the pandemic towards the end of this, we had really pretty good 
retention. We recruited, we planned to recruit 120, we recruited 116. So that was very close and we had very good um, retention and adherence to the intervention as well. You know, the falls and the adverse events, I think were something that we were really keeping a, a keen eye on. And those were basically the same across both of the groups. So you know, it's not a given that an HD exercise is actually just going to make people magically feel better and do better, right? There's a lot of potential consequences of that. So we felt um, pretty good about that. Um, as far as outcomes, so very close to getting this study published, um, but the main findings were that in the cohort group, we saw that they declined over the year period, as we would have expected them to. So at rates similar to what's been previously published. Mm -hmm. And that is important that we show that like, we've got a cohort that looks like other cohorts, right? right? So that cohort declined. The individuals in the control groups, remember we had a control group and then an intervention group. So the individuals in the control group on the VO2 max, on the six minute walk and on the IPAC, which is a measure of patient reported physical activity, they stabilized. So they did not decline to the same rate that the individuals in the cohort did. And the individuals in the intervention group improved on those three measures. Now you have to take that with a, very much with a grain of salt because they're are complications to the way that the analyses work, but that is the general trend. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting because the control group in theory, you would think should have behaved like the cohort, right? right. They didn't get an intervention. And how do you explain only, that? <laughs> the only thing that they got, well, the only thing that they got was they were part of a study. Like they knew that they were part of this group. They got a six month interim assessment. Uh, which the the cohort group did not. And every month they got asked about their activity level. They didn't get any intervention, but all they did was we want, cause we wanted to follow them and we wanted to know how much were they exercising and did they have any falls and just asking them that information was enough to stabilize some measures of function now. And, and the intervention group improved even more. So it's so interesting to me that that happened. Now, you know, it just shows that any contact is and and talking to patients about exercise and activity is potentially incredibly impactful. And obviously they had touch points, but they actually, you know, they had almost, well, it was something like 10 touch points, right? Which were just you know, tell me if you've exercised and they might not have even had that many because sometimes they didn't complete the exercise diary and it was two months or something like that, but they just had enough that they felt that someone was paying attention. That's one theory, right? The results are too clear and they're in three different outcome measures in the same exact direction mm -hmm. that it's hard to believe that it's just by chance and obviously it needs replication, but it's, it's interesting and exciting to me to think about and, and that the intervention group did improve in the, in the measures that were most meaningful. I would have loved to see, and we did not see changes in 
disease-specific measures. So the UHDRS total motor score, which is a very standard gold standard measure of motor function, uh, did not was there was no difference. All the groups declined very similarly. So we didn't with a not very intensive quote unquote direct intervention, we weren't able to move that dial. But it's over a year period, you know, maybe over a longer period of time, we might see something different, maybe with more direct monitoring or even more intensive intervention. But I think we were excited to see some of those measures move in the right direction. And did you find with your with the control group that they actually were exercising more? I mean, did you ask that? We did, but I have to say um, that they had exercise diaries and it was, for lack of a better word, a bit of a mess to analyze the results of those exercise diaries. So they didn't have Fitbits, they just had the diaries. So we're going to be reporting the results of those in the secondary analysis and seeing if there was any relationship between how much people exercised and what their outcome was regardless of group. Right. Um, but we're not, we haven't reported that here, but that's an important question. Um, and you did um, measure some cognitive measures, right? Did you see any changes with that? Yeah, that is a good question. There was some indication that symbol digit, which is pretty much, again, the gold standard for measuring cognitive function in Huntington's disease, improved. But we um, we set a standard of 60% data completion at pre and post and we did not have enough data completion for the symbol digit in order to be able to um, do effect estimates. So okay. it looks like it's moving in the right direction, but we couldn't calculate effect estimates. All right. Um, so looking overall at, at this model, you would think that this would be even a good model for other neurological diagnoses, right? With Parkinson's. I mean, I think about in our clinic, we, as you said, you know, I work in a neuro clinic and our patients like to work with us and they don't want to leave, you know? And so going forward, thinking about like, what's your next step? Have you thought at all about looking at group classes? Cause that's one of the things that we've done in our clinic. Um, patients like it because, you know, I, I think walking on a treadmill or running on a treadmill is boring, but if I'm with a group of people and you're making it fun and you're making it engaging, I'm more likely to adhere and do it. Um, as compared to doing individual work, you know? Yeah, I think that's a great point and a great suggestion. The issue that we have in Huntington's is just the sheer numbers, you know, to get, you can't get a group like you can for people with Parkinson's disease. Um, I, I think, you know, we always are trying to get people to tap into other resources and whatever resources are available in the community. And it could include Parkinson's disease, but that does get, it's, it's a little bit tricky. So look, I think your, your point about they, they like to be with us, right? I think if we're, if you're a strong therapist, I think if you, if you develop rapport um, with your patients, you have knowledge about the disease and the progression of the disease and can be that touch point and give people choices about how much contact they have and what that, what that framework looks like. But I really think we need to, and look, there's episodes of care that we need to give, right? There's restorative PT where patients come in and they're, you know, debilitated. They might not have, you know, they've got weakness. They've had three falls in the last four weeks, get them in, do an intensive training. But what is that 
off ramp look like? And how are we connecting to those amazing community programs that are out there? And then how are we still providing the skilled services? Because I think this is where I think PTs are just so critical. We have that knowledge base that, okay, maybe right now this community-based program is working for you, but this is a degenerative disease in six months, a year, two years, things might look a little different and maybe we need to make some modifications, but we don't want to have to wait until there's a problem in order for them to come back. So ideally, you know, we'd have these frequent touch points Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, why not take however many sessions are paid for on whatever insurance somebody has and spread them out over a longer period of time. Right. Um, And, or think about potentially different models, have some intensity in the beginning and then spread them out. It doesn't work that way now, right? Because every time you see a patient new, then you have to do a whole eval and then has to have a new episode of care. And it, right. And you get a deadline of when you have to get your visits in. And sometimes it's more just about educating the insurance companies. Yeah. And I think we have to provide research that demonstrates the efficacy. We, I, we really need to be doing cost um, effectiveness with a lot of these studies. So that's a a big effort for us. So, you know, our kind of next move, I think, obviously we're going to be focusing on the balance um, study right now. You know, I really hope, you know, someone, us or someone is going to be able to do some balance, some balance training programs. We just have, we we don't have good guidelines about that. There's been a couple of good community-based programs, but we need some trials on this. And then I'd love to extend this and really try to embed it within enroll and, and see how people do over not just a year, but five years, 10 years. What does it look like when people really live well with Huntington's disease and exercise and try to manage the disease under the, you know, skilled guidance of, of physical therapists who are knowledgeable. Right. Sounds like an ideal plan. (laughs) We shall see. Yes. So it seems you answered most of my questions before I even got to to say them. So that's great. But anything that you feel like we didn't get a chance to touch on that you feel was an important key point that you didn't get a chance to mention? I think, you know, just emphasizing to everyone that I hope, you know, I think patients with Huntington's disease aren't necessarily going to come running into your clinic. And I Mm -hmm. think if I can encourage everyone to really reach out to centers of excellence, neurologists, you know, there's, I think something like over 50 um, HDSA centers of excellence across the country, trying to find them, you know, being a resource. You know, I think this is really important. I, I also feel strongly that telehealth is while not perfect in Huntington's disease, I think does create some opportunities for people um, to be seen by, by expert clinicians. So I'm sure that a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast, so I hope we can just reach out. There's a lot of people at risk. This is another thing is we did not include people who were pre-manifest or prodromal, but unique to Huntington's disease. We often know who is going to get the disease before they show symptoms and gosh, what a powerful impact we might be able to have to show the benefits of um, activity and movement early on. Right. Uh, and, and that might, you know, there's certainly animal models that show this, that potential for it to delay or slow the progression of the right. disease. 
to so be I somewhat think, neuroprotective, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. All right. So um, lastly, and now I'm now I'm done with all the Huntington's questions, but we always like to ask what you do when you're not doing PT related activities, which in your case, there's so much that you do. I, I don't know how you have other time, but mm -hmm. in your spare time, what do you enjoy doing? Mm. Well, I'm an empty nester now. So now I have a lot. I am too. <laughs> have dogs left. <laughs> I think, I think the last time I was on, we talked about skiing with Parm and it yes. is still a huge passion for me. So I've recently had knee surgery. So I'm, I've been a patient for a while and it's been fascinating to sort of, to sort of live on the other side of this. And I'm super motivated by my goals to return to skiing. And, uh, I've also taken up golf, which wow. is a very kind of frustrating sport if you're frustrating <laughs> but you know I'm in a motor learning program and oh my gosh it's just insane how challenging it is to hit a very small ball with a large stick but um it's it's fun and um yeah seeing my kids whenever they'll you know let me see them and uh and we live in New York so it's been great to be back in New York and we go through, go for lots of walks in Central Park and, you know, just enjoying life in the city again. So there's a lot to do here. Well, I'm a fellow New Yorker, so I oh, yeah, uh, you appreciate your uh, shout out for the city. Yes. Well, this was very interesting. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. 4D is produced by the AMPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. Our podcast team includes Arm Paget, Sarah Zoller, Katie McGraw, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Carey, Casey Burris, and I'm Chris Burke. Subscribe to our newsletter on the AMPT website at neuropt.org or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a friend or colleague. Special thanks to Jimmy McKay of the PT Pinecast for providing music. And thanks for listening. Funny, we do these podcasts and PTs are all the same. Everybody's hiking and golfing oh. and skiing. And I keep waiting for someone to say, I sit on my couch and I binge Netflix series, but it still hasn't happened yet. I'm telling everybody, like, I've got a total knee replacement. And this is so cool. And this is the surgery and everything. I'm like, I just should have said I was hiking Kilimanjaro and everybody would have been like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's what we do. <laughs> I, it was like terrible. <laughs> <laughs>